Amen, amen, amen. Well, go and take your seat. And uh, let me invite you to get your Bibles out. You can join me in Jeremiah 21. Jeremiah 21 is where we're going to begin uh, this morning. And as you're turning to uh, Jeremiah 21, I want to start by uh, mentioning a phrase that we're all very familiar with. And the phrase is, this is your final warning. Right? We, we hear this in a variety of different settings and context. If, if you're at school, maybe you've had a teacher say to a fellow classmate, or maybe even to you, this, this is your final warning. Uh, um, at work, maybe a, a boss. If you're a boss, maybe you've had to tell someone, this is your final warning. Maybe you've heard the words, this is your final warning. I mean, certainly we think of this relationally. I'm sure no parent in this room has ever said to any of your children, this is your final warning, right, before it totally comes off the rails. Uh, but, but it's something that we're very familiar with. It's something we hear often. And yet when we come to God's Word here this morning, this is God's final warning in the book of Jeremiah. That for the first 24 chapters in the book, God has been warning Israel, warning Judah of their sin. This is it. This is the last warning. Because we get to chapter 25, uh, it's going to chronicle the Babylonian invasion. It's going to chronicle the 70 years of captivity. Uh, the, 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 the book itself is going to shift dramatically. Far more narrative focused on Jeremiah and his personal life. Uh, far less of the uh, prophetic and poetic oracles that we've seen up to this point. And there really is this foreboding sense that accompanies so much of what's going on. And it's because this is the final Warning. And so with that being said, here's where God's word is going to lead, lead us, is that God graciously gives a final warning to turn from sin before issuing judgment. Let me say that again. God graciously gives a final warning to turn from sin before issuing judgment. So that's what's in front of us. Uh, but I think we do well in this moment. Let's just pause, pray. Let's go yield ourselves to the Lord and all that the Spirit of God wants to do uh, in and through his word. Let's first go in prayer and then we'll get into all that God has for us. Pray with me. Gracious and good heavenly father, we are so thankful. God, for your word. God, we're thankful that your word is going to teach and instruct and guide and exhort and direct and accomplish all the purposes uh, that you intend and you desire. God, we pray that we would be submitted and surrendered to your spirit. God, that you would uh, help us to see with clarity. God, that we would hear. Uh, God, that our hearts would be um, in tune and aligned to your spirit and your word and what you have for us here this morning. Uh, God, that you would accomplish your purposes as we uh, navigate and walk through your word. Uh, God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area this morning, praying for Desert Springs and for Pastor Ryan Kelly. Uh, I'm thankful for that brother. I'm thankful for that body of believers. God, we're asking that you would do your good work in them uh, in the same way that we desire that you would do your good work in us. And so God, we are yielded now to you and to your word and all that you would have to say to us uh, Father, we love you and asking you to have your way with us now. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. All right, title of the message, no surprise, God's final warning. Right, it's God's final warning. And again, this idea that God graciously gives a final warning to turn from sin before issuing judgment. Now, this final warning is actually going to come to a variety of different groups of people. Right, Chris just talked about it's going to come to the kings in chapter 21 and 22. It's going to come to the prophets in chapter 23. And then it will come to the rest of the people in chapter 24. 
Uh, and yet, inasmuch as a, a fair amount of the warning is really limited to a specific group, we want to move our way through God's Word by allowing all of God's Word to impose itself and have its way with us. And so while some of this might be directed to the kings, there is certainly implication and application that would be true for you and I uh, as well. And so we're going to move through the Word uh, in this manner and in this way. And, and there's going to be some times where we'll, we'll just kind of do some, some flyovers uh, and, and so this is why we encourage you every week, read the text before you show up so you know what's going on, particularly because we're doing such big chunks uh, in the book of Jeremiah. But with that in mind, here we go. Uh, God's final warning. Let's begin with this idea. Look at chapter 21 and verse 1 uh, and following. We see that God will oppose rebellion. God will oppose rebellion. That's part of his final warning. I'm not standing for rebellion. Look at your Bibles. Here's verse 1 and 2. Here's what it says. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him to Pastor, the son of Malchiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, saying, Inquire the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all of his wonderful deeds. He will, and will make him withdraw from us. He won't, right? That's in short what's coming. But, but the context is this military conflict, this siege that's coming from Babylon, and so, so Zedekiah's like, oh, what are we going to do? Oh, I, let's pray. M maybe God will do something. And I, I don't know about you, but man, when I read verse 1 and 2, I just grimace and stiffen at the lack of self-awareness in Zedekiah and the rest of the leadership. It's like, where have you guys been? Like, you're delusional and you're crazy. Man, for, for decades, you have been defying and rebelling and opposing God. And now, because you're desperate and nothing else is working, now you want him to come? Yet, aren't we the same way? Right? We do the same thing, don't we? Right? We don't go to, go to God first. We're not going to him because we love him. Far too often, our prayer lives are characterized for the same reason. Man, I'm desperate and nothing else works. God help us that we would not be people that go to God as a last resort, but as a first resort. And not because we need something, but because we love him. And so they're like, well, we're desperate. Let's see if God will help. Look at verse 3 and following. God's got thoughts on this. He says, then Jeremiah said to them, thus you shall say to Zedekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I'll turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands and with which you are fighting against the king of Babylon and against the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the walls, and I'll bring them together into the midst of the city. I myself will fight against you with outstretched hand and strong arm in anger and in fury and in great wrath. And I'll strike down the inhabitants of the city, both man and beast. They shall die of great pestilence. Afterward, declares the Lord, I'll give Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people in the city who survived the pestilence sword and famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their lives. He shall strike them down with the edge of the sword. He shall not pity them or spare them or have compassion. Uh, that'd be a no, Zedekiah. I'm not helping. Right? That's the response. He's like, man, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not participating. Not, not only is he not going to help, he's going to fight against them. So make note of this. God opposes defiance. God opposes defiance. Now, now really, what we're seeing here, this is the culmination. I mean, not even of decades. Honestly, this is centuries. This is a culmination of, of generations and centuries of defiance and rebellion toward God and his word and his commands. They have rejected, rejected, rejected. And now in this, this last moment of desperation, they're like, oh God, will you help us? 
Now, praise God that our God is not some insecure God who needs the approval of others to function. Because otherwise, God might be tempted to violate his character in this moment. But he's like, no, that's nonsense. I'm not, I'm not coming to your rescue. I'm not going to be manipulated and exploited because for a moment you want to take advantage of me. In fact, loved ones, don't ever wrongly believe that God needs us for anything. God needs you for nothing. God is entirely satisfied in himself. God isn't insecure, and so he's not going to be exploited or manipulated. He sees right through this. This is why God's fighting against them. Look at verse 11 and following. Right Here's this word that comes to the house, to the king of Judah. He says in verse 12, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor. Let him who has been robbed uh, uh, him who has been robbed, let, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Right? He doubles down on being against him in verse 13. Behold, I'm against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares the Lord. And then look at the people's response, right? You who say, who shall come down against us or shall enter into our habitations? Like who's gonna fight against us? Who's gonna get into our city? We're secure. God's like, I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds. I'm going to come into your city and fight against you because you're evil, because you're unjust, because you've rejected my word, right? because you're evil. I'm going to come to the front line, not for you, but in opposition to you. God opposes defiance. And yet notice, embedded right in the middle of this is this little nugget of glorious light in verse 8, 9, and 10. That God has this word, not to the kings, notice it's to the people. He says in verse 8, and, and to this people you shall say. And here's what God's saying. God is offering, or really God is offering and inviting life. He's like, you, you got a choice. So look at what he says, 21.8, thus says the Lord, behold, I've set before you the way of life and the way of death. He's like, you can live or you can die, your call, what do you want? Here, here's how it's going to play out. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, or by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall, shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. Right? God is offering and inviting life. And don't miss the fact, don't miss the fact that for decades these people have defied and rebelled against God, and yet God is still patiently forbearing with them, once again offering them life. This is God's grace in the midst of rebellion. And so he sets before them this choice. You can live or you can die. If you stay, you're going to die. If you, if you go, you're going to live. Because what God ultimately wants, what he desires is what is for our good. That's why he's warning them in the first place. But don't miss, don't miss that the distinction between life and death is tied to a willingness to either follow and yield to God's word or to reject and to defy God's word. Do You see, it's plain as day in the text. If you do what I tell you, you're going to live. If you don't do what I tell you, you're going to die. Which, by the way, that's true in every facet of our life. It's the same principle. If you want to live, that means you have to yield yourself, surrender yourself, submit yourself to God's word and do what God says. And if you defy what God says, you're going to die. Right? It's only those who believe what God says about himself, that he is holy and just, and, and, and what he says about us, that we are sinful and alienated from him. And what God tells us about Jesus, that it's through Jesus and only through the shed blood of Jesus that you and I can be reconciled and restored to God. That's the only way that you live. You have to believe what God says and you have to submit yourself to it. 
If you defy what God says, you will die. It's not just here. This is true in all of our spiritual lives. This is the gospel playing itself out. And how do we know this to be true? Because the whole Bible tells us. We're back at the same place. I'm either going to believe and obey what God says, or I'm going to defy and reject what God says. And so God here is offering, and he's inviting life, even in rebellion. And I think it's worth noting. Remember what Ezekiel said? Well, God said in Ezekiel. He says, I I take no pleasure, take no delight in the death of the wicked. This isn't fun for God. What he actually says right after that is, I would desire that they would turn and live. That's why this warning after warning after warning. I mean, the first section of Jeremiah could be like three lines. Repent or die. All right, on to chapter 25. But God continues to warn because of his grace to his people. But part of his warning is he'll oppose rebellion. And so then notice, secondly, in chapter 22, we see this second element continuing with the kings. And here we see that God calls us to justice and righteousness. Now, the rebuke here is to the kings. He's going to address every single king. This is a series of messages. And he's going to address every single king that ruled during his lifetime. And what he's going to bring to the forefront is that they failed to utilize their position and their power in a manner that was consistent with God's words and God's commands. And yet, in the midst of this, inasmuch as he's addressing the kings, this becomes an exhortation for you and I as well. And here's the exhortation, that we are responsible to live justly. God has an expectation that you and I would live justly. Look at your Bibles, 22.3. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who's been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. God expects that dignity and care be bestowed upon all people. And so kings, who certainly have incredible power and influence, but really anyone who has power and influence, should be utilizing that position for the benefit and the blessing of fellow image bearers. Let me just boil it down this way. When the gospel grips us, it changes us. Do you hear that? When the gospel grips you, when it grabs you, it will change you. When you give yourself over to Jesus, he is going to transform your thoughts, your attitudes, your behaviors, your mindset. He's going to transform the entirety of your life. And so so these kings should be changed, but they're not changed because they haven't given themselves over to the Lord. And so again, notice we're back here at a place if we're going to obey and submit to God's word or defy and reject. Look at verse 4. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings who sit on the throne of David. Right? So it's like, hey, if you obey, we're going to continue with the line. But look what he goes on to say in verse 5. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. Again, we're back. You can do what I tell you and live. You can reject what I tell you and die. And specifically here, it, had, it was reflected in how they treated other people. Was there a justice and a righteousness that was extended? Because the, Mos- the Mosaic law... What, what, what was, was unlike anything else in its time. In, in, in the ancient world, the, there was no provision for the, the marginalized and the oppressed and those on the fringes of society. And yet the Mosaic law had all kinds of protections and provisions for them. And it's not just an Old Testament thing because we see that carried out in the New Testament as well. Right? You get a, a variety of verses, but probably the most notable one, James 1, where we're told that pure and undefiled religion is what? Tell me. Yeah, we're caring for orphans and widows. 
right? That it's the same concept. And so, so, so we're to live justly. We're to live righteously. And it's summed up in, in a manner that you and I have regard for fellow image bearers. The problem is the kings, they don't abide this. And we see in the following verses how this plays out. Right in verse 8 and 9, nations pass by and they see the desolation and they go, why is it? It's like, well, because they've forsaken the Lord. And we know that this is true because look at what it goes on to say. Look at verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbors serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I'll build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms. Right? They're, they're not interested in living for God. They're interested in living for themselves. That's all they care about. I'm just trying to get mine. I don't really care who I have to run over in the, in the process. And then you get down to verse 15 and God's like, yeah, see, here's the problem. Is that your fathers were different than you. He says in verse 15, do you think you're a king because you compete in cedar? Right? Cedar imported from Lebanon, a sign of wealth. It's like, oh, do you think, you think you're king because you got, you got wood? That doesn't make you king. Look at what he says next. Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He's like, see, your, your father actually lived well and did what was required of him. Verse 16, he judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. And then look at this next line. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord. See, to, to know the Lord really the evidence, the demonstration that you and I know the Lord is that we live justly and righteously. That we have regard for, for, for fellow image bearers. Right? It's not just about my own personal benefit. The problem is the kings have failed uh, to leverage their position for justice and righteousness. They've instead used it only for personal profit. Look at what it says in verse 17. But you have eyes and heart only for dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. You don't care about anybody else. You just care about yourself. It's worth asking. Is our heart for righteousness or for personal benefit? Do I got eyes for justice or for personal gain? Am I committed to honesty above profit? Right, we're called to live justly. All these rebukes, the chapter continues on really with the consequence of what's going to come because they've failed to live justly and righteously. And you get to the end of chapter 22 and really you're left with this depressing picture of these generations of failed leadership and the impending exile for their defiance. And, and, and the, 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 the once great hope that used to reverberate in the times of David and Solomon and the like, that's gone. Right? The good old days are just that. They're old and in the past. And maybe you feel like that. Maybe you look around and you're like, man, the good old days are gone for us too. Well, good. God's got a word for you. Because the people are in disarray. The kings are a disaster. And God is going to address that in stunning form here at the beginning of chapter 23. Look at what he says here. That God promises future hope. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? In the midst of judgment, in the midst of this condemnation, there's still hope. And love, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the promises of God transcend the sinfulness of mankind? I mean, praise God for that. That's exactly what we're seeing in the text 
right here. The promises of God transcend the sinfulness of man. God promises this future hope. In fact, there's three distinct promises that we get in verses one through eight. Here's the first. We see it in verses one through four that God gathers his people. So look at your Bibles, 23.1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock and you've driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. God's like, I will hold you poor shepherds accountable. Verse three, then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and I'll bring them back to their fold and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall any of them be missing, declares the Lord. So he's gonna deal with these wicked shepherds, but here's the promise. Now I'm gonna give you shepherds. We're gonna gather you. I'm gonna give you shepherds. They're gonna return you to the land. I'm gonna give you shepherds that care for you, that are watching over you. I am gonna do for my people what these wicked shepherds have not done for my people. I will gather and I will shepherd. Anyone else make a promise like that? That's what Jesus does, right? It's John 10. Jesus talking about being the good shepherd. Right, this, is, he's, this is Jesus. That's who he's talking about. He's pointing you to Jesus, loved one. He's telling us, no, there's, there's a far better shepherd coming. Right, that, that the good shepherd... Jesus is going to be the one who leads and feeds and guides and protects his people. And, and the true sheep are going to listen to him. And, and it says in verse 4, here's the sheep. I mean, keep in, keep in mind the setting and the context. You're about to be a conquest. Babylon is going to conquer you. And yet he's saying, nah, man, you're going to have a shepherd. You're not going to be afraid and you're not going to be dismayed and none of you are going to go missing. How could anyone have that kind of confidence? Because they know the true shepherd, the good shepherd, he'll lay down his life for his sheep if necessary. That's what he'll do. So there is this confidence and this stability in the care and the oversight that God has in gathering and shepherding his people. It's a glorious prom promise. And once again, we're back at this place. Am I going to believe what God says or am I going to defy what God says? Love them. will you trust? Will you trust that God is going to gather you? Will you trust that God is currently shepherding you? Will you cling to the truth that God will never abandon you? Will you, will you just trust in your, in your head, even if you can't believe it in your heart? God sees all of it. He's saying in Jeremiah's day, I see those knucklehead shepherds. I'm not missing that. I'll deal with it. God's going to gather his people. And as incredible as this promise is, it might not even be the best one. Look at what you see in verse 5 and 6. God promises his king. He promises his king. Verse five, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. All your kings couldn't do this, but my king will do it. In his days, Judah will be saved and all Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Right after two chapters of these miserable failures as kings, we get this glorious promise of this future greater king, this righteous branch that's going to come from David. And it's not David. David's centuries before. He's pointing us again to Jesus. He's like, this king, this king is going to be wise. This king is going to execute justice and righteousness. Right further, this king is going to save Israel. He's going to produce and promote security for the people. But look at his name. Anything interesting about his name the lord is whose righteousness 
our righteousness. Wait, what? Our righteousness. There's a possessive sense to this. See, not, not only is there this future king who's just going to lead well and, and rule well and be better than all the other lame kings before him. No, no, this promised king is going to grant the righteousness of God to us. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, because of him, God, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, right? He became righteousness to us, sanctification and redemption. He's become our righteousness. Paul says a similar thing in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not simply have it, not possess it, become it. It's literally going to identify us. God's saying, look for the king who not only rules well, but is going to give you his righteousness. Oh, praise God. We get a better king. He's granting us his righteousness. He's giving us future hope. And again, don't, don't forget what's going on contextually. They're about to be taken over, right? They're about to have a new king, so to speak. And yet the promise of the king comes right in the midst of that. And I say this because you look around and you might be dismayed. You might be disoriented. Uh, you, you might feel like the world is kind of chaotic and, and, and spitting uh, out of control. No, no, you need to be bolstered that ultimately you are under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. And he will be deterred and dethroned by nobody. We've got a better king. So whether it's Nebuchadnezzar or something else, doesn't matter. I'm not trying to be cold, but I don't care. I don't care what you're afraid of. It does not matter. We have a ruling king who will rule for all of eternity. So Jesus is going to come. He's already come to remedy our sin. And then our king is going to, King Jesus is going to return to remedy the nonsense of a world in rebellion to him. This is an incredible promise, if we'll let it be. And then he's not even done. He's like, oh, I got one more promise for you. Look at seven and eight. That God returns his people to his promises. He says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Right? He's talking about returning them to, to, to the promise. Now we saw almost an identical thing stated back in chapter 16. Here again, he's talking about this future exodus. Hey, just as God led you out of Egypt, God is also going to lead you out of Babylon. But here's what I want you to take note of. And, and really in the confines of these promises. When, when God, back in Genesis 12, when God made a promise to Abraham, he promised him offspring, he promised he would make him a nation, and he promised he'd give him a land. To depart from the land at some level is to depart from the promise. Right? That, that, that's part of what God promised. Now you're not in the land. And so what God is telling them, he's like, hey, listen, I know you're going to be leaving the land. Don't worry, I'm going to preserve and I'm going to continue my promise. You'll return to it. It's going to happen. And that, 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 that reminder is such a helpful truth for us today that, that God, God, doesn't, God doesn't abandon any of his promises. Right? All of his promises are yes and amen in Jesus. So we can cling to God's promises in spite of the chaos all around us. So when you, when you consider, you start thinking about the promises of God, that God is going to redeem us or ransom us. He did it. That God is going to reconcile us to the Father. He did it. That, that, that God is going to forgive us of all of our sin. He's done it. That, that, that God is going to adopt us and make us sons and daughters. Done. 
That God is going to make us co-heirs. It's coming. That He's going to return. It's coming. That He's going to rule for all of eternity. It's coming. See, when you look back at the promises, you have confidence in the future of those promises being preserved and seen through. That's what He's doing here. And so where do you need to be reminded of the fact that God is going to return to His promises? What perspective? What, what perspective are you lacking where you're doubting one of God's promises? That it's not going to come to fruition. See, here's what you got to understand. This is, this is more true in Jeremiah's day than it is in our day. The present is bleak. It's bleak. But if you are in Christ, the future is always bright. It's always bright because the promises of God are always in front of you. God promises future hope. Man, God help us. God help us that we would live in this, be reminded of this, hold fast to this. And honestly, man, I wish we could just stop right here, right? This, this, this encouraging word, but, but that doesn't fit structurally uh, because we got some other groups that need to get rebuked. All right, so here we go. Let's move on to the prophets and back into rebuke mode. That was fun. The sun will come back out at the end, I promise, but it's raining again, starting in 23.9. So, so here, God rebukes the false prophets, and so, so look at what he says, verse 9, concerning the prophets, right? He's talking about the prophets, and what he begins to talk about is the prophets' ungodly way. Here's what you have to remember about prophets. Prophets aren't, they're not the creatives. They're not the originals. The prophets are given a message by God, and then they are to take said message and deliver it to the people. That's their job. If you, if you want a, a contemporary equivalent, they are spiritual mailmen. That's what they do, right? Your mailman does not write notes and stick it. Well, maybe he does, but typically mailmen don't write letters. Um, they don't put bills in your mailbox. They're not delivering, po they're not writing postcards. They're just simply delivering what someone has sent to you and giving it to you. That's what prophets are supposed to be. The problem is a lot of these prophets have overstepped their bound. Look at what Jeremiah says in verse 9. He says, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I'm like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine. Now, Jeremiah is not talking about being drunk. Look at what he says next. Because of the Lord and because of his holy words. He's saying, in the same way that a drunk is controlled by wine. Right? This foreign substance controls my actions and behaviors. That the word of God is controlling me. He's like, I'm just the mailman. I'm compelled to deliver whatever God gives me. Problem is the rest of the prophets aren't playing that way. Right? They, play, they play very differently. And so what we see, he says in verse 11, both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I found their evil. And, and the evil is described in the, in the following verses. In verse 13, that they led the people of Israel astray. In verse 14, they commit adultery and walk in lies so that no one turns from his evil. In verse 15, that ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Right? This is this complete disconnect. Now, again, we're at this place where God's word is a watershed. Right? The distinction between Jeremiah and the rest of the prophets is their approach to God's word. Jeremiah is utterly controlled and, and overcome by God's word. The rest of the prophets are just doing what they want. That's the distinction. Jeremiah is controlled. They're uncontrolled. And, and the difference in that approach leads to radically different conclusions. Right? The people are either going to be led toward the Lord or away from the Lord. There's going to be fidelity and truth or there's going to be adultery and lies. There's going to be godliness or ungodliness that's promoted. This is why we've got to be Bible people. 
That's why we got to be Bible people. Your, your, your thoughts and your ideas aren't going to take you to the promised land. God's word is what's going to take us to the promised land. So the prophets have this ungodly way. They get real silly and cute thinking they've got something better than God does. That's foolishness. And so the, the result is what the prophets end up doing. They end up lying to the people. That's what you see starting in verse 16. This is the prophets lying words. Look at verse 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. Now think about this for a second. God's telling his people, hey, don't listen to my messengers. They're frauds. I mean, how stunning and how jarring that had to be in the moment. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. No, it won't. That's a lie. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Also a lie. They're lying to the people. They're giving them false hope. They're giving them false assurances. So God's like, no, no, man, they're not mine. I reject them. Those are not my prophets. They're not speaking on my behalf. In fact, if anything, what they're doing, they're giving you vain hopes. They're trying to tell you, you can pursue sin and it will go well for you. That is utter nonsense. That's ridiculous. Let me try to illustrate this. I want you to imagine you take your car to the mechanic, getting ready for a big road trip, and you're like, hey man, I just want to make sure everything's working. Mechanic pops his head under the hood, right? Does a, a, a whole look through and he's like, hey man, looks great. Everything looks great. You're good to go. The problem is, it's not great. He just didn't want to tell you the truth. Now, in the moment, you're like, great. I don't have to replace anything. I'm not, I'm not having a spin. Car's in good shape. And in the moment, you enjoy what you hear. Are you helped by that word? No, you're not. Because when you're broken down in the middle of nowhere, that could have been avoided had the mechanic been honest. But the mechanic wasn't honest. See, that's what the prophets are doing. They're lying to the people. And the stakes here are far higher than the mechanic and your car. See, God says as much. Look at what he says in verse 18. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who's paid attention to his word and listened? He's like, they're not hearing from me. They're not listening to me. They're not coming to me. Here's how you would know if they had come from me. If they, verse 22, if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people and they would have turned them from their evil way and from their evil deeds. See, here it is again. God's word changes God's people. God's word transforms God's people. It's going to reshape us. It's going to reshape our attitudes, our behaviors, our mindsets. See, the word of God, here's what the word of God will do if you will let it. If you will let the word of God speak into your life, it's going to conform you to the image of Christ. That's what it will do. And here's how it will do it. I want you to think of a river. Right, as the river cuts through the land, usually, right, most of the year, steady water flow in the west, Rivers never make it to their destination. We're all in a drought. But you understand, like in typical uh, places, right, the, the, the river flows. And what happens is two things are simultaneously happening. There is erosion that takes place, right? It's peeling away rocks and dirt and sand, and then it will deposit that sediment in other places. See, loved ones, this is what God's word does for us. 
It will erode away at sin and self and the promotion of pride and arrogance and things of that nature. And it will deposit grace and gospel and Jesus more and more in your life. And so in the same way that a river is both cutting away and depositing, God's Word will cut away and it will deposit if you lit it. And that's what makes what these prophets are doing so egregious. They are stripping away the gift that God has given to his people of his word. These people cannot be conformed to the image of Christ because they're not given the word of Christ. That's why we take so serious preaching from the Bible. I got nothing for you. I got absolutely nothing for you. God has everything for you. That's why you're helped to hear the word preached. You are not helped to hear my talk, right? The lying prophets are robbing people from what God intends to offer them. And they, like the religious leaders of John 8, unfortunately, we could say of them that God's word finds no place in them, which is why they don't speak God's word. But I wonder, does God's word find a place in you? Does it find a place in you? Will you let it speak? Will you let it have its effect? Will you let it do what God intends for it to do? Oh man, the prophet's lying words. The lying words of the prophets, listen, they, they, it'll tickle your ears. It'll make you feel good in the moment. It will not conform you to Christ. Only God's word, only God's word will do that work. And so on the heels of that, God's like, hey man, let me take over because my prophets, they failed. So now we're going to see God's greatness that's going to promote God's truth. So look at what God says in 23, 23, 23. It says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? I've heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name. So there's this major pivot, right? And the major pivot around God's greatness. And God's saying, I am both near and far. I see, I hear, I fill and keep in mind in the context, all of this were the prophet's lying words. He's like, I see right through your little scheme. You might fool some people. You're not fooling me. Right? Because I, I'm at hand. Right? It's a reference to God's personal engagement with his people. And then he says, am I not also a God far away? It's just this idea that God is universally overseeing everything. So loved one, God knows intimately what's going on in your life. And he can say that for all 8 billion people on the planet right now. Like simultaneously. You and I don't know what's going on in most people's life. God knows intimately what's going on in everyone's life. We praise God for that. And so he's calling out the prophets. Let me pick it up in verse 26. How, shall, how long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the, the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams, that they tell one another, even as the fathers forgot my name for Baal, let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat? Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Therefore, behold, I'm against the prophets, declares the Lord. Here's what he's saying. He's like, listen, you can have your dream, and you can tell people your dream, but don't you dare try to pass that off as the word of God. Your dream is just that. It's your dream, but it ain't the word of God. So don't act like it is. And then he gives three examples to drive this home. He says, what is straw in common with wheat? 
Now, now think about this, particularly in an agrarian society. Straw doesn't do anything for you and I. Wheat is what sustains us. He's like, that straw will not help you. It's empty. Wheat is what's going to sustain your life. The words and opinions of those prophets can't help you. God's word is what's going to carry you through and enable you to live. Since God's word is like a fire. He's referencing the purifying work of God's word. So if you think of someone working with metals, well, they'll heat the metal to where, where it becomes liquid and they, and they can scrape the dross and the impurities off. That God's word is going to purify you. And then he talks about God's word being a hammer. right? You think of like a, a, a rock with, with some kind of minerals inside and you hit it with a hammer and it opens up and it reveals something entirely different than what's on the surface. And God's saying, man, I expose what's really in people. My word does that. Right? Hebrews 4 talks about the, the, the word discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. See, God's greatness is promoting God's truth. We see this as well in verses 33 to 40. He's talking about this burden, right? this burden, which, which may be a physical burden, something to carry, although it's probably far more likely um, a, a verbal burden, the message that has to go forward. And again, contextually, it makes sense. The prophets are conflating their personal opinion with God's word. And God's saying, that's not my word. That's just your opinion. In fact, as you think about that, let me just warn you to be very, very careful of saying as well as giving credence to those who say, God told me, God said to me, well, you know, if they want to quote something in here, I'm all in. If they just want to tell you their opinion or their thought, you do well to hold that at arm's length. See, because God's word is inspired. It is an errant it is divine. Our thoughts and opinions are not. Let's just make sure we understand which is which. That's part of what God is doing here. God's greatness is pointing us to God's truth, and God's truth points us to his greatness, which brings us to this final section, 24. God here has a final warning for all the people, and really it's, it's a surprising word uh, for the exiles that God has, uh, and, and it, it, it comes in the form of a vision. And the vision, I'll just tell it to you, there's two baskets of figs. One basket is a basket of good figs. Uh, the other basket is a basket of bad figs, spoiled figs, ruined figs. Uh, they're, they're not any good. Uh, the good figs are those who, who uh, go into exile. The bad figs are those that stay in the land. And we don't totally know why that's the case. That's just how God chose it. Um, but what I want to do, I just want to take our last couple of moments. I want you to look at verses 5 through 7. And just pay attention here to the good figs. And what God says to them, verse five, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I've sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good and I'll bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. That's incredible. What a promise. Like, hey, y'all about to be exiled, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to give you a heart to know me. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to return you with a whole heart. I mean, there is a poignancy to what's going on here. This is, this is in the realm of Ephesians 2, right? We're dead in our sin, but God has raised us unto new life. It's incredible what God's doing here. But I want to focus in on one phrase towards the end, that really is, this is a whole Bible phrase. They shall be my people, 
and I will be their God. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's a whole Bible phrase. God is working that out throughout the entirety of the Scriptures. Genesis 3, sin comes into the world, and God immediately gets to work on reversing the curse so that He can continue to be their God, and He is going to restore His people. When God gives the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, He's saying to him, you're going to be a nation and a people for me. When God leads Israel out of Egypt and they're in the, the, the wilderness in Exodus 19, they come to Mount Sinai. God says, I brought you to myself. In chapter 20, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God is saying, I am the Lord your God. Why am I going on and on about this? Because this is, this is cover to cover in the Bible. Hosea says, tell those who are not my people, you're going to be my people. Later in Jeremiah, he's going to say, you're, you're my people in Jeremiah 31 with the promise of the covenant. In Ezekiel, after the valley of the vision of dry bones, right? Death to life, God's saying, you're going to be my people. Cover to cover, this is God's end game. I'll prove it. Go to Revelation 21. Flip your Bibles there. I want you to see it. I'm not hearing Bibles turning. Let's go. Revelation 21. Here we go. Here's what it says, Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It's the whole point. Man, cover to cover. God's, God's beginning game was God's end game. I'm going to create a people for myself. They screwed it up. All right, I'm going to work. I'm going to work to restore my people unto myself. It's going to cost me my son. He's going to have to shed his blood in your place, and I'm still pursuing it. And the promise and the hope that you and I all have, this, this, this is where we finish. Guys, this is where we finish. The dwelling place of God is with man. He's going to dwell with them, and we're going to be his people, and God himself is going to be with us as our God. That's the word of hope and promise. Right? Even, listen, listen, even in exile... God is working his stunning and surprising purposes by which he makes us his. Listen, listen. You are his and he is yours. Isn't that awesome? You are his and he is yours. Loved ones, live in that. Live in the fullness of that. Yes, I understand there, there, there's a final warning, but even in the final warning, it's pointing us to the hope that we have in Jesus. That we're going to be his and he's going to be ours. What an incredible God we serve. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. God, we are so thankful to you. God, for your redemptive work on our behalf. God, the ways that you are chasing your people down. God, the ways that you refuse to let us go, even in our rebellion and defiance and obstinance. God, you continue to pursue. You are gracious. You are patient. You forbear. You warn because you love. And so, God, we pray. God, we pray that we'd hear it, that we'd see it, that we'd see the grace and the forbearance and the patience. God, we'd see the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. God, that we would long for you above all else. So Father, we're thankful for the, the, the hard word 
that comes as a warning. Because even in the midst of that warning, God, you are pointing us again and again and again to our Savior and to Jesus and to the final destination, which is eternity with you. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And we pray that you'd be glorified in all that we say and do. And we pray this in your name. Amen.